Welcome to another episode of And Another Thing, the world's greatest podcast. Tony and I didn't make up that line. That was actually voted on by several major podcasters throughout the world, and they came to the same conclusion. We are the best. I'd like to thank Tim Ferriss, an armchair expert, and Joe Rogan for the, those yes. votes. Yes, well, you stole it out of my mouth. I was going to say Joe Rogan was very adamant that our podcast is the best. Um, and I mean, who's going to argue with Joe Rogan? You I'm can't not, argue with him. He's, uh, he knows it better than anyone. So our program is presented by Municipal Solutions. We are so thankful for John Mutton and his team and their support. You can find them online at municipalsolutions.ca. And Tony, I know you have a little uh, script that you wanted to read there. And then we have another exciting sponsor that I'm going to talk about, but I'll let you go first. Yes. Well, of course, uh, Municipal Solutions, it's all about business development, market analysis, energy and infrastructure advancement strategic planning, stakeholder and government relations, and public policy development. John and the gang are always there for you. When John isn't in Croatia, which he has been for the last week, but I think he's back now, and uh, it looked like he had a good time in Croatia, eh, Jody? Yeah, if you follow his Instagram, the muttonator, he looked like he was having one heck of a time. So I was living vicariously through him this week. I know. It was like uh, life in Zagreb seems to be good. There you go. <laughs> Very nice. Very nice. Where I was, like. Where was Borat from? He was from, from Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan, yes. Glorious Republic. <laughs> okay, we have a new sponsor of the program. We're excited to announce this one. Lord and Lady Coffee. Yes. So if you're a coffee drinker, lordandlady.ca is the website. They have two fresh roasts. One is called The One. It's a medium roast. It's their signature blend. And they also have a new dark roast called Midnight Voyage, along mm. with some amazing merch. They do small batch, local, fresh roast, whole bean coffee delivered to your door anywhere in Canada. And if you spend more than $40, shipping is free. So you can go online to lordandlady.ca for your coffee fix. Well, we thank them for their sponsorship. And I know, Jody, you're integrally involved in that organization. So uh, best of luck with that startup. Sounds amazing. Full disclosure, I'm one of the owners of that company. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you are. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> All right. So we have an exciting guest today. Tony, I know he's a good friend of yours. Uh, we'll see if he actually admits that on air, but uh, I'll let you I'll let you introduce him now. Well, he is a good friend of mine. Of course, we're talking about Member of Parliament Mike Chong. He is the Member of Parliament for Wellington Halton Hills in Ontario. Uh, he is currently the shadow minister for foreign affairs. So that means you're basically the, the critic on the, for the official opposition for uh, foreign affairs issues. Uh, Mike Chong, welcome to the program. Thanks, Tony. Welcome, great to Michael. be here. Yeah. No, Thank you. It's great to have you here. So I got to ask, I, I do this uh, sometimes uh, when, I like the, when I like the guest, maybe. Uh, but uh, of course, uh, <laughs> I, I want to I make sure your family is, is safe and everybody's doing okay during this time of COVID. Everybody's well, thank you, Tony. Carrie and our three boys are doing well, and uh, they're happy to be in school this autumn. Oh, good. Yes, of course. Uh, and uh, you guys are going to be safe over the holidays, I bet. I gotta, I gotta ask though, uh, how has life on the on the hill, Parliament Hill? How has that changed? Uh, walk us through that a little bit. Well, the first thing that's really noticeable is the is that there are very few people on the hill. Normally, Parliament Hill is a beehive of activity. There are 
hundreds of there's thousands of people who work on the Hill pre-pandemic. Uh, that's not the case today. It's just a skeleton staff and a fraction of the MPs that normally would be here. So it's markedly different in that sense. Everybody's wearing masks uh, and the House is only about uh, a fifth of its normal capacity. Yeah, so that must be very strange because usually when the House is sitting, the place is a hive of activity, of course, during the day, but in the evening there are events, special events, uh, there might be uh, lectures, there might be visiting uh, dignitaries, all of that's gone, I guess, eh? Yeah, just that's exactly it. There are no evening receptions, no lobbying delegations. Uh, it's really, it's interesting. It's really, it's really returned to the way I imagined it would have been uh, a century ago. It's focused on the activities of the chamber of the House of Commons itself. And so to me, it's, it's a bit interesting to see how that operates. Um, you know, we don't have the overlay of, you know, literally thousands of other people working on the Hill. It's literally a skeleton crew of members of parliament on a rotation. And uh, it's really focused on anybody who's here on the Hill is focused on one thing, the operation of the House of Commons itself and all the peripheral activities um, have been shut down. Now, I want to get to your critic uh, responsibilities, but before we do, of course, you were known and are known as uh, a kind of a reformer of the procedures of the House to make it more democratic, more accountable, more transparent, give the individual member of parliament more authority and power. Uh, In COVID times, uh, I guess uh, I'd love to get your assessment. Are there any lessons to be learned? And uh, what's, your, what's your grading of the Trudeau government when it comes to respecting the House and the individual MPs? Well, I think the COVID pandemic has taught us that it's at these times of high stress and pressure that our democratic institutions are tested. And my view is that the government, had it had its way, uh, would have tromped, trampled all over those institutions. You know, at the very beginning of this pandemic, in early uh, March and April, you know, the government essentially proposed to shut down Parliament till the end of next year. You know, they proposed to strip Parliament of its long-held powers to approve spending and to approve taxation and give that to the PMO until the end of next year. Thankfully, um, our institution, our House of Commons, is strong enough to stand up and say, no, we're not going to allow you to do that. Um, but it's been uh, a period of trying times for our democracy. Um, you know, the parliament was prorogued in mid-August, which essentially shut down all the committees and their investigations uh, for a number of months. And so we've just got back up and running in the last uh, couple of months. And uh, we're finally back at doing our job, our constitutional role, which is to hold the government accountable and make sure that it's uh, doing the best job it can. Now, you have specific responsibilities, as I mentioned, as the foreign affairs critic or the shadow minister for foreign affairs. What are your priorities? I, I can think of, uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on China, on human rights, Canada-U.S. relations. You've got a big, wide canvas. So tell us what your priorities are. Well, my focus is to point out the problems with the government's foreign policy. You know, they came to office uh, telling the world that Canada is back, 
but the facts say otherwise. You know, they recently lost the UN Security Council vote uh, in June with six fewer votes than Canada got a decade ago. That's six fewer countries on the world stage that see Canada as a leader. And I think that's an indictment of the government's foreign policy. You know, we're drawing attention to the fact that, you know, they're not meeting their other big commitment, which was on foreign aid. They promised that Canada would be a world leader in helping the poorest around the world. Well, that hasn't happened. In fact, quite the opposite. They've cut foreign aid. Uh, this government's level of foreign aid is 10% lower than it was under the previous Harper government. You know, they came, they came to office promising to do better on climate change. Uh, again, you know, they failed in that commitment. Canada's emissions continue to rise. In fact, they released data in mid-April during the pandemic for 2018, the most recent year for which they had data, and emissions jumped to a whopping 729 megatons. And yet they tell Canadians that they're going to not only meet the Paris Accord, but exceed it. You know, it's there's a massive gap in this government's foreign policy between its rhetoric and reality. China, you mentioned, is another case in point. Uh, their policy on China isn't working. It's completely incoherent. And they have implicitly acknowledged that. They've acknowledged it uh, by the fact that they're, they've announced that they're coming forward with a new policy on China sometime between now and the end of the year. They've acknowledged it uh, by catching up to us um, and changing their rhetoric on China in the last uh, two months. Uh, so that's another area of concern that we're pointing out. Their policy isn't working, and they need to do a better job. Of course, we've. Uh, I know Jody wants to ask a couple of questions too, but uh, Canada-U.S., obviously uh, we're looking at a change of U.S. administrations and uh, changes in the Congress. Uh, is that going to be a focus for you as well? Absolutely. In fact, there is no foreign relation more important to Canada than the United States uh, while China may be our biggest challenge, the U.S. is our closest and most important relationship. You know, we're bound in so many different ways together by history, by geography, by people, by trade, and in so many other ways. So we believe that the government needs to make the Keystone XL pipeline um, the top of the bilateral list. Um, Justin Trudeau, the prime minister, has said that he will do that, but uh, we we want to see that talk backed up with action. You know, in, in 2015, when the Liberals came to office, they said Keystone XL was important. They said they supported it. But when President Obama told uh, the prime minister he was not approving the project, uh, the reaction of the prime minister was very revealing. He accepted a celebratory dinner, uh, a state dinner at the White House, and at that state dinner, several weeks later, there was lots of talk of bromance and smiles all around, but very little discussion, no discussion of the cancellation of Keystone XL. So this time around, we hope he doesn't repeat that mistake. We hope that he makes it clear to the Biden administration that not allowing the Keystone XL pipeline to be completed would have serious consequences for Canada-U.S. relations. Jody, uh, going to pass the baton to you. Yeah, I just had one question I'd be interested in knowing from your perspective, Michael, and more more on the reflective side of things, I guess, in your career. We are a couple years removed from your leadership bid in a very crowded field. Are you 
and I mean, I can guess what you might answer to this, but hopefully you'll give us the <laughs> most honest answer. Are you somewhat glad or part of you glad that you didn't actually win? I'm very happy where I'm at. I am today. Being leader is a being leader is a very difficult job, uh, and you know it's it's not something you take on lightly. I was I'm delighted that we were able to participate in that leadership race. You know, we contributed ideas to the race. We put forward our proposal for uh, a plan for the environment, uh, revenue neutral carbon tax. We put forward plans for democratic further democratic reforms. To the House of Commons, uh, put forward other ideas on how to increase Canadian prosperity and create jobs by huge changes to our massive reforms to our income tax system. Um, so I was I was really happy that we were able to contribute to that leadership debate. Um, but I'm very happy where I am now. Um, Aaron O'Toole's got an immense job ahead of him, and uh, you know I'm there to support him and uh, through the thick and thin of it. And another question on the lighter side, we had Dan Albus, uh, one of your colleagues on, I don't know how long ago that was. How long ago was that, Tony? Like a couple months ago? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So we always ask this question because it was sparked by Dan, but we always ask this question of MPs we have on the show. Um, of course, you know, Dan's, or maybe you don't do or you don't, but his, his martial arts background. But is there, if you could pick one MP in the house that you would like to roundhouse kick, which MP would it be and why? <laughs> well, the answer to the question is I wouldn't pick anybody to roundhouse kick. My <laughs> colleagues, even that's on what, the other side of the aisle. Look, yeah, that's what we, Dan said. We, we, no, Dan, we Dan did pick somebody. Dan did pick oh, somebody. He did. You're right. Yeah, yeah, he did. He did. Look, uh, to be clear, the House of Commons should not be an afternoon high tea where we all, you know, uh, agree on everything and work to a you know work in a consensual style. It's a combative arena where ideas clash and where people are passionate about what they believe in. And that means from time to time you're in these tough debates um, and tough fights for those things that you believe in. But at the end of the day, you know we are we we have democratic norms that we have to abide by. And my view is that we shouldn't be crossing those lines when it comes to the way we treat others. Focus on the attacking the ideas, attacking the substance of their arguments rather than the individual. And I think that's the line that we yeah. should help. No, over. no. Yeah. Attack the idea, but not the roundhouse yeah. kick of the uh, individual. That's good. Quick, <laughs> one out, last one. Out, I believe in giving proverbial roundhouse kicks <laughs> to the ideas. One, not one the last individual. question. One last question for me, Michael, um, just because I'd like you to key in on your, your riding, your constituency. And this is maybe not, I don't want to say it's unfair, but I, I might put a little pressure on you. Where's the best place to get baked goods in your riding? Oh, well, that's a good question. <laughs> I would say the best place, there are a number of places. Of course. Um, there, but one of them, unfortunately, shut down in the middle of the pandemic, had been run yeah. by a family for many, many years in Rockwood, Ontario. But the other place that's equally good is in Erin, Ontario, and it's called Holtons. And okay. Holtons, Holtons has been run by the same family for generations. It has the best donuts and tarts anywhere around. It's on the main street of Erin. If anybody's ever driving through, stop at Holtums. You won't be disappointed. Tell them Michael sent you. That's right. 
<laughs> I, I think Jody really wants to know where they sell coffee. Is that where you're going with this, Jody? Well, yeah, actually, I'm looking for <laughs> vendor locations for my yeah. company. Yeah. That's really what I'm doing. So. Yeah, I think that's what we're using our podcast for now. So, uh, Michael, what I wanted to ask was about your parents, uh, who are both immigrants. That's the my case as well. And I'd love to know what lessons you learned from them while growing up that were that are important to you now as a parliamentarian and as a human being. Well, Tony, I think we have similar, share similar experiences that way. My parents drilled into our head that this was a country where anyone could make a go of it and that we had a responsibility uh, to this country to give back. And we had a responsibility to uphold the principles on which it was based, to participate in our society and contribute. And, you know, we all do that in our own different way. And like, you, I decided to do it through public service. So that's one of the things that was drilled into my head. Another thing that was uh, drilled into our heads at a very young age was the contribution of Canadian soldiers who had died in defending and liberating people around the world in defense of these fundamental principles. My mother would talk reverentially about the liberation of the Dutch by Canadian soldiers in May of 1945, and she'd often get teary-eyed about it uh, when she talked about it. So it's something that uh, we learned from a very young age and something that we'll always be very grateful for. And you grew up in Fergus, Ontario. I think you were born in Windsor, but you grew up in Fergus. That's right. And that's rural, rural Canada, rural Ontario. And how has that helped define you, having a childhood there? Well, I didn't even grow up in Fergus, Tony. I grew up outside of Fergus in the township. Oh um, my goodness! It's called called the township of uh, the township of Nickel, and uh, I grew up on the eighth, uh, ninth uh, concession on the twelfth, thirteenth lot of the township of Nickel in the county of Wellington. <laughs> that's where I grew up. Um, so I Fergus, still Fergus the was road. the big big city for you. Yeah, that's right. And my driver's license, you'll remember this from back way back when, when I first got my driver's license, my Ontario driver's license in the 1980s, it was a paper, you know, it was a paper form on the one side and a, and a photo card on the other side. Well, my, my address was L12-13C9, uh, nickel TWN SHP, and nobody could figure out where I lived. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But I, I grew up on that rural concession, and I, you know, one of the formative experiences I had was, was working for the neighbor. He was a beef farmer. Uh, he had a cow-calf operation of about uh, just over 100 uh, registered Herefords, and I did that for the five years I was in high school. And I Wait a minute, what, what, did you do with the, what did you do with the cows? Well, we, I was a farmhand, so I worked, uh, you know, worked about 800 to 1,000 year, hours a year at that farm, while I was in high school, and I did everything from helping birth calves uh, in the winter to, you know, uh, doing uh, cleaning out pens of manure and spreading it uh, to, you know, planting, uh, helping to plant and plant crops, uh, cut hay, bale hay, wow. stack the hay mow, uh, all those sorts of things that you do on a farm. And so it's some it. You know, it's one of the best uh, jobs I ever had. It didn't uh, pay a lot of money, but it was something that uh, I, I look back even to this day with a lot of fond memories. 
That's amazing. Uh, I, I worked in my dad's uh, restaurant. I was uh, I was a handy person there, and uh, you know, uh, you know, bus boy, uh, cooking the garlic bread or whatever. And uh, so, I, my hours were ten a.m. to two a.m. Those were my hours. So, uh, <laughs> you know, and I got thirty nine bucks a week. So. It was, there, uh, there you it was, go. Yeah. <laughs> hey, uh, I got to I got to mention as well. Uh, I know your bio well enough to know that you worked for the National Hockey League Players Association for a while. That's right. Yeah, any you got any good stories there? Uh, I worked. Yeah, I worked for uh, Bob Goodnow, and uh, he was the executive director at the time. You know, got to meet a lot of uh, interesting people uh, during that time, and. Uh, you know, I remember we would have these annual player meetings and they would take place in various parts of North America. One year we had it in Whistler um, and, you know, you'd be walking through the lobby of the hotel and, you know, hundreds of NHL players would be coming through and it was just one after another. And, I, you know, you get, you after working in a job like that for a while, you kind of get blasé with it because you see so many of them all the time. But you just realize, you know, how special that was to be able to work in a sport organization at such a high level. So I enjoyed that time there. Um, it was an intense experience. Um, it was uh, in the lead up to the renegotiation of the collective bargaining agreement that took place several years later. Uh, and I learned a lot uh, working at that job. Well, there, I'm, I'm sure a lot of them were, were great people. Uh, and, uh, that's, that's the one thing they, these are human beings too. They're, yes, they're hockey stars, but they're also human beings, right? That's right. Jody, what did you think about that? Did you know that he worked for the NHLPA? No, I did not. I think that's a very interesting aspect of, uh, your career, Michael. And I do, I do agree with the sentiment. (laughs) They are human beings just like us. They, put their pants on one leg at a time. The only difference is they probably have wads of cash in those pants pockets. That I, I, don't, think, so. I think we need more cowbell for that. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you got that reference. Good. I, good for you. I, I got the reference. But it was a good, it was a, it was a good group of people that I worked with, you know, for example, Jordan Banks who worked with me at the PA at the time, you know, we've, we've all gone on most, not all of us have moved on. Some people are still remain working in the organization, but Others have moved on to, uh, you know, to great heights. To think about Jordan Banks, I worked with him there. He's now uh, president of Rogers Media. Um, there are many others who've uh, done well in their post-PA careers as well. So we keep in touch, uh, some of us. We get together from time to time. Uh, one of the fellows I worked with there moved down to Austin, Texas, and works at uh, Whole Foods in, in network integration. He's trying to help integrate uh, Whole Foods Network with Amazon. So um, it's it's a great group of alumni uh, that work there that went through a pretty intense time. Nice. Hey, Michael, one last question from me, and then I'm, I'm good to, you know, what I don't know what Tony has. No, but I'm good. I'm good when, too. Are, when are you going to hang it up? Do you have an exit plan, or are you just going to keep going and and uh, be the Joe Biden of uh, <laughs> you know Canadian politics? Or <laughs> Well, Joe Biden's in his late 70s. I'm 48. I know. So are you going to be the Joe Biden? Yeah, you you got another 40 years to go, buddy. The the answer is that this job is 110% all the time. Tony knows that firsthand in his experience in provincial and federal cabinet. So my view is I'm at 110% right now. I'm, I'm going to give it everything I got. 
And the day that I wake up and realize that I don't have that in me anymore is the day that I move on. Um, but I'm fully engaged. I really want to see us do better as a country. Um, I'm really quite concerned about the future of this country. Um, I see deep structural challenges in our economy, in our foreign policy. And I really think we have to get serious as a country on these different issues that we face. And I want to play a role in doing that. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good answer. And oddly enough, that's the exact same answer that Joe Biden gave in 1974 when he was asked. So there you go. There's lots of years left for you, Michael. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, I want to thank you for being our guest. I, I know you've had you've got a very busy day today and we do appreciate it. And uh, I wish you best of luck in this session. And of course, uh, for the rest of uh, this term of parliament, for sure. Well, it's great to be here, Tony, and thanks for inviting me on your show. All right. Take care, Michael. Thank you. Thank you. Excellent interview with Mr. Chong. That was a lot of fun. He uh, he can take the jokes. I like that. Yeah, no, he's he got a good sense of humor and uh, a dry sense of humor, but I think a good one. And uh, I'm glad we... Uh, we got him to talk a little bit about some of his background because uh, that's what I like with our with our show. We we ask maybe some standard questions about what are you doing, uh, uh, you know, uh, how do you think about the issues of the day. But I always like to get a little bit deeper than that too. So thanks. Yeah, and then we'll ask who would you like to roundhouse kick, which exactly. I think is a that's a fair question. I think of any politician, regardless of the party they're in. I mean, I, I think it's 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 our jam. I mean, that's what and another thing podcast. No one else asked that question. In fact. Tony, I'm going to task you with a, another job. We got to get Stephen Lecce, Education Minister for Ontario, back on, and that's going to be the first question I ask him. Hey, did and you, I know, I know, he will evade that like nobody's business. But I'm going to ask him the question. Did you see that the the, uh, the uh, t- top Toronto, the most influential top fifty list from Toronto Life? And, no, and Lecce was number ten. Really, and, and Drake was number eleven. No, I kid you not. <laughs> he's probably loving that. Oh, he's loving it. He's published. He's I've seen him posted several times. So uh, he's he's, he's, uh, <laughs> he's more influential than Drake. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. That's that's, that's what Toronto Life says. There you go. <laughs> All right. Thanks again to John Mutton and the crew of Municipal Solutions for their support as well. Lord and Lady Coffee. If you go right now to the website, lordandlady.ca, spend more than 40 bucks. Free shipping. You won't be disappointed. Tell them that Tony and Jody sent you, and you might even get yourself a nice little treat. So, Ooh, sounds yeah. good to me. Yeah, go spend 40 bucks right now, Tony. Exactly, right now. <laughs> All right, we're going to do this again in seven days, and you enjoy the rest of your week. You too, bud.